0: When you're a police officer, one of the things you learn as part of your training is that there's no such thing as a routine encounter or a regular traffic stop. In most cases, you don't know the person you're about to interact with or if they have a criminal history or how desperate they might be. My guest today, Daryl, found that out the hard way. He was a rookie officer working the morning shift on a weekend, and he wasn't necessarily expecting anything exciting to happen. But then, he unknowingly crossed paths with a career criminal who had recently escaped from prison, and that man was determined to do anything to avoid being captured. Real People in Unreal Situations
1: there is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My
2: friend has been shot. I'm in the, literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He
3: had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire.
4: If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm gonna kill you. And he was just sobbing.
3: He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're gonna be okay. And
2: I jumped on the hood of the car and I held
0: on.
3: And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters.
0: I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? how old were you when you decided to become a police officer
4: when i actually decided i was gonna start testing and whatnot i was probably about 19 years old and obviously too young to test because you had to be 21 back then i had tested with la before i tested with denver and that's actually a a different uh, kind of a neat story because i have a cousin that's a cop in uh, la And he told me, he says, go take the test, all these little police departments, and you're going to fail them all. And he was right. And he says, then go to LAPD and take their test and you'll be ready. And they were right because he was right because when I did go to L.A., I got accepted. So then I had to make a decision. Do I want to live in L.A. or come back home to Denver? So I came back to Denver and I did the same exact thing.
0: What was the reason for failing at all of the little departments?
4: Well, you don't really know what they're looking for, okay? And usually the little departments pattern their tests after the home uh, rule of PD, like Denver. You know, I went to Arvada and Aurora, Lakewood. And in California, I went to Torrance and uh, all those little police departments. It was true. You bomb out. I mean, it's you don't know what they want, and then you start getting the idea what they want. And it worked, I can tell you that.
0: So you had been a cop for a couple of years. This thing that we're going to talk about that happened in Denver. And how old were you at that point?
4: I think I was 21 or 22. Cuz I came on in 1970 and I got shot October 3rd of 71.
0: So just a- almost a couple of years then.
4: Yep. I was a rookie.
0: Take us through what happened that day. This was you were doing the morning shift and it was on a Sunday.
4: It was. It was uh kind of a chilly time. And I was part of my precinct was projects. And I had just gotten a, a, a twist and chocolate milk at Winchell's. And I was going to 44th and Le Pen to Sunnyside Drug to get a Sunday paper. And I was going down Mariposa Way when I spotted this little black uh, Chevy. And there was two females in it. And the passenger was a, a male. And he had this uh, weird Castro hat on you know, the the hat that Castro always wore and it had some buttons on it. And he he looked like a tough guy. So I got nosy and I pulled around and got behind him and walked up to the passenger side and uh, ID'd him. And I asked him for his driver's license and he acted like he could only speak Spanish. And I didn't believe him, of course, but he had a, a coat laying across his leg and I took that off and put it on the top of the car. He pulls a wallet out, and in the wallet, he had uh, some pictures of some children, and a social security card with the name Luis Archuleta on it. So I get him out of the car, and I'm going to pat him down because this guy he 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 looked like a, a a con. So I
0: gotta I gotta just ask you this: you at this point you were you were interrogating him or, or asking him questions just based on instinct, right? Or did you have yeah. an actual did you need a reason back then to stop somebody? Not, not really. So there wouldn't. It'd be. It's, it's different today, then,
4: obviously. Oh yeah, it's different today because they, they want you to have probable cause and whatnot. And uh, back then, your probable cause was the guy looked like a character, you know. And now he's producing a, a social security card, and uh, he doesn't have a picture ID. He had joint tattoos. So, anyways, get him to the back of the car, and I tell him to put his hands on the the trunk. And rather than do that, he turns sideways and he's shuffling down the trunk with his butt towards the trunk and his right elbow is going up. Well, I was real close to him. So I decided, well, I'm going to hit him and uh, try to get the gun away from him. So I hit him in the temple, knock his glasses, his sunglasses and hat off. And stupid here, I reach across his body and uh, he's got a revolver. I'm really no match for him. You know, what I didn't know was, is that uh, he was pumping iron in the penitentiary and, uh, you know, he was a beast. So he level he levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. He's running off and I've got my gun, but I don't shoot the guy. There's uh, kids and people around because that's what they do. They watch what you do when uh, you make a stop in the projects. So, anyway, I had to um, crawl to the car because we didn't have radios that came out, you know, like they do today.
0: Well, so you had to get back to your car just to radio for help.
4: That's right. And secondly, we didn't have bulletproof vests, and that's why I took one in in the nine ring. So,
0: Where where is that? What's that section?
4: Well, imagine a body target, and 10 is your heart area. Nine's the next area around it. Eight is around that. And, it, you know, it goes out f- from the heart on out. So it's was the nine ring. And we say the nine ring. So what we didn't know at that time was that he was an escapee from California. He had escaped from a penitentiary there. And he was doing time with a certain individual that told him, well, go to Denver and you can hide out with my old lady. You'll be safe there. And that's why he was in Denver.
0: If you would have known that ahead of time, you probably would have approached him a little differently. right? Oh, yeah.
4: I'd have taken him at gunpoint and called for backup. You see, back in those days, the morning shift is uh, were solo cars. They weren't two-man cars something that i've never believed in i always have felt that every shift should have nothing but two-man cars so
0: what did it feel like to get shot
4: oh my goodness it, it kind of knocked the wind out of me and i couldn't get my legs to work and i had to crawl to the car and i was thinking god am i shot in the spine i didn't know and it wasn't really painful it didn't get painful till later so (laughs) uh
0: maybe because of adrenaline
4: probably probably so that was basically the shooting incident itself
0: so you were probably out of commission for a while
4: oh yeah many weeks and i was in the hospital for actually i don't know if it was about three weeks or what but the bullet uh did a lot of damage and so you know i was lucky to be alive now if i had to to do over Knowing what I know now or two years later uh, in my career, I would have backed up, pulled my gun, and shot it out with him. I'd have never hit him or tried to fight him. It was stupid on my part.
0: Yeah, but you were still a rookie.
4: That's true. That's
0: true. So he ran off, and, and so what happened from that point?
4: Well, the Crusade for Justice got him out of Denver and took him to Mexico. So he's down in old Mexico and he gets in trouble down there and they have a, uh, we've never been able to verify, but we think that uh, he was involved in a shooting with a bunch of other guys that were dealing narcotics and, uh, you know, just being kind of like rebels in a way. They were anti everything and uh, he gets caught. And they're torturing him, supposedly. He later, uh, says that they had him sitting on ice blocks and beating him with a rubber hose and all this stuff. I don't know if that's true, but, uh, he, he got to an American consulate and says, Hey, get me out of here. I shot a cop in Denver. And that's how we got him back. That's when we learned his real name was Lawrence Pusateri.
0: So he was being treated so badly in Mexico that he wanted to come back <laughs> yeah. and, and be tried for shooting. You Absolutely.
4: Know. That was the the lesser of the two evils, and he thought that they were going to kill him. And so we get him back, and we go to trial. He gets nine and a half to 14, and I didn't think that was a very big sentence, but that's what he got. And so down the road in 1975— He and a a guy named Sidney Riley go to the state hospital. All the inmates in Colorado, if they have to have an operation or a procedure, they have to go to the state hospital in Pueblo. So anyway, they go there and uh, they go in and I guess they asked to use the bathroom. And they had guns waiting for them. So they armed themselves. Now they have an accomplice that has a car there waiting for them. And they shackle up the two guards in the bathroom, and they make their escape.
0: This sounds like a movie.
4: No kidding. I agree. It's like a movie script.
0: So the whole thing, the whole hospital trip, they had all planned this all out, obviously, ahead of time.
4: Oh, yeah. They had it planned. It was orchestrated beautiful. You know, if I get a chance to talk to him, which I'm going to try to do when he hits Canyon City, he's in diagnostic right now. I'm going to congratulate him.
0: This escape during the hospital trip, would today's procedures have prevented that kind of escape?
4: I have no idea. I have no idea. You know how he escaped in California? He put a dummy, he built a dummy in his bed so it looked like he was sleeping. He was at some camp, and uh, that's how he escaped.
0: This guy knows how to get away. He sure does. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni, She's known around the world as a chef, you've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of CookUnity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce, I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked, so when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day, I heat it for a few minutes, and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing.
3: Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what.
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. SEED's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science, and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, dso one is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1, Daily Symbiotic, at seed.com slash what? Code 25what.
1: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
2: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
4: Yep.
0: So that must have been kind of discouraging for you to realize, wow, this guy shot me and now he's free again.
4: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I initially tried to find him and I really didn't think he'd be in Denver. I mean, it's not that we didn't look there and we contacted my informants and all that stuff and trying to find him, but uh, I didn't think he'd go there, and I knew he wouldn't go back to Mexico, and I didn't think he'd go back to California where his mother is. And uh, I was right, because uh, the three states I thought he might have lit in, he did. So now Sidney Riley, who escaped with him, was caught, I don't know how quickly but it was pretty quickly of course you know, i mean he was he's bragged when they arrested him and stuff that he was on the run longer than anybody whitey bulger was only on the run for 18 years so
0: <laughs> hmm so you didn't even you didn't give up on tracking this guy down
4: oh no 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 i made it kind of like a hobby for these past 46 years, you know, I'd contact my informants and family members of the gals that were in the car and just general uh, bad guys, you know, just so they would would talk. And I know they were talking, saying that crazy is still looking for the guy that shot him and all that. So anyway, it paid off.
0: I know for the rest of your career, you kind of kept track and tried to tried to find him. But this, you're talking about even after you retired.
4: Oh, yeah. I just kept hammering away. I'm pretty persistent. You know, it was June 24th of 2020, and I got the phone call, and this person said, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I'm going to tell you where your guy is that shot you. And he did. I mean, he said, this guy is living in Espanola, New Mexico. He's running under the name of Ramon Montoya. He's married to... uh, Esther Chacon. And he gave me the address. So that's all the information he gave me. And uh,
0: Who was this guy?
4: I have no idea. Probably somebody that owed me. So I took that information and plugged it into my databases. And lo and behold, up he pops. Ramon Montoya. He had a phony date of birth. And there was Esther Chacon. There was the address he gave me. So, you know, I uh, kept digging from there. And I found that he was arrested in, uh, I think it was Henderson, New Mexico, in 2011 for DWAI. And I called them. And they uh, couldn't or wouldn't give me a picture or his fingerprint card. They couldn't find his fingerprint card, by the way. So anyway, the picture... It was him. So I call this um, Lieutenant um, Abraham Baca at the Espanola Police Department and I lay all this out to him and I send him all the information that I developed. And I developed more information than that. I found his first wife. When he first escaped, he married a Starlene Montoya that was uh, from the Santa Fe area. Had three kids by him. And when the FBI interviewed her, she says, I divorced him because he was mean and violent, and he sexually assaulted my daughter, and that's why she divorced him. I later called her, and she was really cooperative, and she says, I'm glad you survived meeting him because he's really dangerous. I also tried to call his other family, the Chacon family, except uh, they didn't like me, and they they wouldn't talk to me. You know, they said I was heartless going after an old man that was sick and all this stuff.
0: I I can't imagine you had a whole lot of sympathy for him. No,
4: I didn't. I didn't care. (laughs) I don't care if they like me or dislike me.
0: It's pretty amazing that he stayed in the United States though.
4: This guy, he's smarter than I ever thought. He was really smart to stay hidden for 46 years. Now think about that. 46 years. Now, Darlene and one of the sons, Mario, said that he admitted that he shot a cop in Denver to them. And that he'd been on the run and all that. And maybe it's true, but no. understand. He had a valid driver's license, a social security card, both under Ramon Montoya, not his real name, fake uh, date of birth. And once you got that, When you got those those items and uh, they're real government IDs, how are they going to get you? They're only going to get you if you get arrested and they fingerprint you and they send the prints to the FBI and they run them. They have a computer and they can run them through that computer and that's how they catch a lot of people.
0: Right, because they hit a match.
4: Yep. So anyway, I mean, you got to hand it to them. I mean, this guy stayed hidden 46 years
0: yeah that's just incredible to me and i would think you know from his standpoint like maybe after eight years or ten years or something he's probably thinking hey i'm i'm okay i'm clear i got away with it but then especially after 40 years or longer yep he's thinking there's you know there's no way they're ever going to catch me now
4: it's true that's true
0: so this local police chief helped you out
4: he wasn't a police chief he was a lieutenant and he did. The only thing he did that really upset me was he called in the FBI. First thing they did, they says, well, we want to debrief your informant. And I said, that ain't going to happen. Even if I knew who the informant was, I wouldn't let him near him. You know, I've, I have a lot of experience dealing with the FBI, and I wouldn't let him near him.
0: And why is that?
4: Well, because they want to document him. They want to make him a witness. He may have to take the stand. They burn everybody, you know, and then they put them in witness protection or whatever. And I just wasn't going to play at their game. I know their game.
0: And you didn't know who it was anyway, so you couldn't have no, given him up.
4: I couldn't have given him up. I wouldn't have. Everything he gave me was right on. And then the information I developed from there was right on. You know, that's how we we got him back. And at the time of his arrest, he told the FBI the SWAT team and all that. He said, I don't know who you're looking for, but it's not me. So anyway, they had him show his his, uh, bare chest and arms and there's the tattoos. You know, I got a picture of him in my book where he's got all those tattoos and then his fingerprints. I mean, he wasn't going anywhere. When they arrested him, you know, they said he's sucking oxygen. Of course, we knew that because they uh, saw an oxygen truck delivering oxygen to him. But I said, is he able to stand? Oh, yeah. I said, can he walk? Yeah. But he has a wheelchair. I said, it doesn't matter. I says, he's he's looking. He's planning another escape. Trust me. I mean, I know this man, and he is. He's going to try to escape again.
0: Man, you'd think at some point he would just give up and say, look, let's <laughs> just let me just live out my days and not no. try to be on the run anymore.
4: No, that's no fun. I don't believe it.
0: When he was arrested, he was living there with his wife and some other relatives. But did that wife know about his past with you, or do she, you know?
4: No, she says that she had no idea that he was a fugitive, that he'd shot a cop. Now, she didn't tell me that. She told the FBI that in Espanola. So the other one, though, the other wife, she was very uh, forthcoming with me, and she, she said she knew. But she was afraid of him. You know, in fact, when they first showed him a picture and said, do you know this person or however the FBI did it, she denied it because she's afraid of him.
0: That's common, though, in a, in an abuse situation, right? Right. So this guy, how old is he now?
4: I think he's 77. He's born in 43, his real date of birth.
0: Boy, what a, what a life.
4: Oh, my goodness.
0: What is his current legal status?
4: Well, he's in... Um, what they call diagnostic. It's reception and diagnostic. And it's a building on Smith Road in Denver where everybody goes prior to being shipped to an institution like Canyon City or Buena Vista or one of the privately owned uh, penitentiaries. So he's been there quite a while. Now, he went to a hearing recently and they served a, a writ of habeas corpus, which my understanding they would have had to, Bring him to the court. That's produce the body. So I tuned into that court that day, but I never got to see him. I want to see what he looked like. I mean, they got a picture of him on the Department of Corrections website. You can go there and see what he looks like, but they got a, he's got a oxygen thing in his nose, but, um, the 2011 picture. Now that's a good picture of him. The way I got that, I went to mugshots.com. And they had his picture, four of them, on that website when he got arrested in New Mexico.
0: And we'll have pictures. We'll have these pictures you're talking about. We'll have them in the show notes for this episode. If people want to look at that, yeah. He's in Denver. Yes. And you're in Denver. Are can you just go visit him?
4: No, no. I have to wait for him to go to Canyon City. Then they have to send him a request, and he has to say, "Okay, I will meet with him." He can deny me access to him.
0: Do you think he'd want to meet with you?
4: I don't know. I don't know what the upside is. And it may not be an upside for him.
0: He may just want to see this guy that's been chasing him for 46 years.
4: (laughs) Anyway, he's going to trial if he doesn't take a deal for the escape. And something I didn't know was, is that uh, no, no statute of limitations on escape in Colorado. And secondly, when he escaped, the day he escaped, his time stopped. That nine and a half to 14, it stopped. And if he would have just stayed in jail, he'd have been out.
0: Long ago, he would have been. Long ago, long ago. Of course, somebody with his mentality, though, he would have done something, and he'd be back in prison anyway.
4: Mm, Maybe. But he'd have done about seven years, and he'd been gone. He'd have been back in uh, circulation.
0: Assuming that he says he's, uh, he's okay with meeting you, what do you say to him?
4: Well, I've thought about that, and what I was going to do, first of all, I was going to congratulate him for being on the run for 46 years. I mean, that is an achievement, and that's probably how I would start out the conversation with him.
0: A worthy opponent, so to speak.
4: Oh, he was really worthy, formidable, really hard to find. I'd have never found him if this person had to come forward.
0: Well, you have a book out. You you had quite a career as a uh, as a police officer. I did. And your book is called "The Blue Chameleon: The Life Story of a Super Cop." What what's the reference to the chameleon?
4: Oh, you'd have to read the book. <laughs> 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 but um,
0: that's a good little tease. I like that.
4: Yeah. What's cool about the book? The cover of the book is the shirt I was wearing the day I got shot, and after after I got out of the hospital and stuff. I'm trying to think exactly when I went and got the shirt. But I did go get it, and they gave it to me. And it has the bullet hole and the evidence tag still on it. So I made a book cover out of it.
0: That's a great idea. I love that. It's different. But you talk about, in the book, you talk about your career as a cop, and you were uh, controversial, very, to say the least. Very. Can you talk about that a little bit?
4: Well, I started getting really good at being a policeman and uh, i had a knack for developing informants i did all sorts of big cases and uh i got a lot of publicity and not that i looked for it it just it just came so i wrote a book there was a lot of uh rumors and stuff and i wanted to uh, i wanted to set the record straight about my career there was rumors when I retired and stuff that I got fired and all that. and So I had to set the the record straight mainly to go on. So I wrote this book, and it turned out to be a great book. It's won a bunch of awards. And I'm just adding the 18th chapter, and that's chasing Pusateri and, uh, and he being arrested. And that whole chapter, I'm, I'm done with it. And I'm switching publishers. So as soon as I get a publisher... The next book will have that chapter in it.
0: Well, we'll put links to your website and where to get the book and uh, all that stuff in the show notes for this episode so people can check that out. Daryl, I, I uh, applaud you for your persistence in trying to catch this guy. I'm glad he's back in prison where he belongs. And, and thanks for telling your story.
4: Well, thanks for asking.
0: If you want to find out more about Daryl and the book he wrote about his lifelong career as a police officer, check out his website, which is thebluechameleon.net. And I wanted to let you know about a few ways you can connect with me and the podcast that you might not be aware of. First up, do you get my emails? I send out an email every time a new episode comes out, and I'd love to include you in that. You can subscribe, and it's free, of course, at whatwasthatlike.com slash email. And if you're on Reddit... And I know some of the listeners to this podcast are diehard Redditors. This podcast has its own subreddit. I think right now there are only about 100 people subscribed there, but it keeps growing steadily. That's at reddit.com r slash what was that like. And I also post something new and unusual on Instagram almost every day. And there are over 10,000 people following me there which is at instagram.com slash what was that like. And if that's not enough, you've heard me invite you already to our Facebook group where we have about 1200 podcast listeners having discussions about all kinds of stuff. That's at what was thatlike.com slash Facebook. All right. So that should give you enough ways to stay in touch and keep up with what's going on. And to close out the show, something a little different. I get a lot of people contacting me with their stories to see if their story might be a podcast episode. And for the vast majority, I have to decline. And there are lots of reasons for this, which I won't go into right here. For a lot of them, the story itself might be really interesting, but for one reason or another, it's just not a good fit for an episode. So to end today's show, I'd like for you to hear a few of those. Take care. I'll see you in two weeks.
3: My father was in an accident involving a train when I was a child. He was out late with some friends and on his way home when he came upon an uncontrolled railroad crossing, which essentially means that there are no signals or gates. It's just a, a crossing kind of on a country road. And he didn't see the train approaching, so it hit him and he died instantly. My family really struggled with it. And to this day, I have not asked where it happened specifically. We don't talk about it often. And I know if I knew the location, I would never be able to cross them, the tracks again. But um, of course, every time I cross tracks, I wonder if those are the ones that it happened. But I'm, I'm working on healing from it, um, despite the fact that it's been 17 years now. Um, It's still prevalent in my mind, and anytime I hear a train whistle or see railroad tracks, I I think of him. One strange thing about his passing was shortly before he died, we went to Six Flags as a family, and we were waiting in line, and they had the little sweepstakes that you can enter in the little plastic box, and he entered us in a free trip to Hawaii, and I've always wondered, do people even win those things? But for whatever reason, after he passed, we got a phone call and we had one and we ended up spending, spending um, approximately two weeks in Hawaii after he died. And he was the type of person that loved the beach. And I mean, in my eyes, it was a gift from him. And to this day, I will forever view it that way. I'm definitely looking for support groups. If anyone else has been through something similar, Um, family members lost due to um, a car accident involving a train, Um, you can reach out to me at amberrhasty at gmail.com. Thank you.
1: Visiting my Uncle Bob and Aunt Margie's dairy farm was something I looked forward to on our once-a-year family trip to the country. I loved the cows in the cornfield. Their dogs were a pleasure, too, since we didn't have any pets. Aunt Margie would cook up a great country supper when we visited. Uncle Bob once gave me and my sister a ride on the tractor, which was pulling a corn harvester through the field. It was exhilarating to watch the corn fly up from the stalk and fall into the large container behind the tractor to be brought to the silo. Those were the best days, and I wished I could live on a farm instead of the city. I had just turned 11 before this visit in the late 1950s, and it was getting late in the day, and we hadn't been to the cornfield yet. I wanted so badly to stand next to those tall stalks and maybe walk around a bit. The adults were sitting in chairs near the garden, and I stood in front of my father and asked, can I go for a walk in the cornfield? He ignored me and kept conversing with Uncle Bob, so I stood in front of my mother and asked the same question. She wouldn't answer me. These were the days of children being seen and not heard. I decided it was getting late and we would be leaving soon, so I made the decision to go see the cornfield by myself. I walked past the silo and came to the gate in the fence. I unlatched it and walked through onto a dirt ground. The cornfield was in sight, and I took four steps toward it, and then my feet wouldn't move anymore. I didn't understand what was happening. I tried to turn around toward the gate, but my feet and legs wouldn't follow my upper body. I felt desperate and tried to reach the fence for something to hang on to, but it was out of reach. I was sinking fast in mud. I wondered how I could remedy this. Could I scream? My 11-year-old logic told me that my parents didn't hear me when I was standing right in front of them, so most likely they would probably not hear me now. The mud was up to the bottom of my chest, and I reasoned that soon I may need to hold my breath. I knew I could hold it for a long time because I practiced at the pool in town. I wondered how much further I would sink. The mud was up to my neck when suddenly I saw my cousin running toward me. A look of shock was on her face as she spun back around, leaving a trail of dust at her feet as she ran with all her might to get help. Soon, the only way to survive was to tilt my head back as far as I could and stare at the sky. I looked down my nose and saw my Aunt Margie running full blast toward me. And then I felt her hands reach in and grab my arms and pull my muddy body out of that sinkhole. My aunt hosed me off in the cow barn and explained that it had rained for three days and caused a sinkhole right where I stepped. When I asked if I would have drowned in that mud, she answered yes. Sadly, we never visited the farm again. It's no wonder I had nightmares and panic attacks.
2: Hi, this is James Clattenburg, and this story is about a small plane crash in the Turks and Caicos Island back in 1992, I believe. So I went to the island with a friend Dave, and we first went to Provo, or Providenciales, and we were there for a few days, and this big storm came in. And we had already planned to go to Salt Key, or Salt Kay, for this middle part of the trip. And there was a pilot who was going to take us to this small little island, I think only about 60, 80 people, less than 100 residents anyways. So it was very stormy and we met the pilot the day before and he said, do you guys still want to go tomorrow? It's going to be very stormy, but you know, we should be fine. So we said, sure. So we were staying at this small little hotel or guest house on Salt Key. And we got in contact with the guy because he was going to pick us up, the owner of the hotel or the inn, and then take us to the property. So we get on the plane that morning and it was very windy and it was a five seater Cessna. And I believe there was only one door and it was on the passenger side. So the pilot jumps in, then I get into the back, which is a row of three seats, very small seats. And my friend Dave gets in the front. So we take off, and it was extremely windy. I mean, granted, it was a small plane, and it was just, the plane was just bouncing all over the place. So I'm holding on to either side. Granted, this is only a 10-minute a flight from Provo to Salt Key. So we start to land. And I'm not a pilot, but I know that you land against the wind, not with the wind behind you. So we I, we can see this small little runway, which was basically, it looked like, I don't know how many feet long, but it was very small. And it was surrounded by barbed wire to keep out the donkeys and the wild bulls that roam this little island. So we're landing and the wind is just pushing us so fast towards this runway. And so we basically just slam into the ground. And the pilot just says, Oh, shit, and he immediately turns the, the wheel. And the landing gear just collapsed. And we are scraping along sideways towards the end of this runway. And at the end of the runway, there's a row of barbed wire, like I was mentioning to keep out the wild animals. So <laughs> the propeller flies off. We're skidding, and it was sort of like being in in a car in the snow where you don't, there's no control. You don't know when it's going to stop. And we're just skidding along, skidding along, and all of a sudden the plane stops probably 10 feet short of the end of the runway. One wing is through the barbed wire, and then beyond that there's a ditch. The pilot immediately unbuckles his seatbelt, jumps out over my friend Dave, who is is a big guy, like football player guy. And and he runs down the runway and leaves us there. So we're stranded. We're thinking, oh my god, is this plane going to blow up? I mean, it it all happened so quick, and we just slammed into that runway. And we we both thought that the plane was going to, who knows, explode. So he runs off. We get out of our seatbelts. We get out of the plane, and you know, we're running away from the plane. And we see the guy who owned the end, who was there to pick us up. And he looks at us. And he says, I have lived on this island for 15 years. I have never seen a plane come in so fast. He said, I thought you guys were goners. Now, would you like a cocktail? Or do you need to change your underwear? (laughs) So I laugh about it now. But it was scary, 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 because it was just ah. It was funny. And then there were other things that happened on that particular island. Like I was chased by a donkey and then was sucked into the ocean. So in the end, we end, we end up laughing about it, but we called it Death Island because, <laughs> uh, so hopefully nothing like that will ever happen again. So, um, but anyways, that's my little airplane crash story.